we should give him a plug there on the press uh, conference later this year. Um, Alexander is going to talk to us about disruption in continuity, the use of ornament in the Rite of Spring. And I apologize for the brevity of that introduction, Alexander. I have literally just met him, so <laughs> it's very nice to have you here. And uh, I do hope you will mm -hmm. well, okay. not be uh, afraid. No. <laughs> Everything is perfect now. Thank you very much for the introduction. Um, spring. The earth is covered with flowers. The earth is covered with herbs. Great joy reigns over the earth. The people stand up and start dancing. These are the first sentences of the scenario of the Rite of Spring as printed in the original program for the premiere. They seem to promise a choreographic work fully attached to the long history of the perception of dance movements as elements of floral and vegetal patterns, where dances could be seen as embodiments of opening and closing flowers, with their limbs and legs outstretched as twigs and branches or curled in themselves like the acanthus leaves of Corinthian columns. Yet this promise, as we all know, was not fulfilled. Six months after its righteous premiere in the Théâtre de Champs-Élysées in Paris, the Rite of Spring led to a further aesthetic event which, albeit less noisily, marked another revolutionary and highly influential step in the dance history of the 20th century. In November 1913, the French homme de lettres Jacques Rivière published his long essay on the Rite of Spring. This extensively explained the novelty of both Stravinsky's music and Nijinsky's choreography and that directly, directly into the problem of ornament in the Rite of Spring with its famous first lines. I'm going to quote um, them from a translation by Truman Campbell Boulard, or Ballard, I don't know how to um, say this name. Quote, um, Riviere, the great novelty of Le Sacre du Printemps is its renunciation of the source. Here's an absolutely pure work, bitter and harsh, if you will, but a work in which no gravy deadens the taste, no art of cooking either smoothes or spices the edges. It is not a work of art accompanied by all the usual fuss. Nothing is blurred, nothing diminished by shadows. There are neither veils nor poetic sweetenings, not a trace of atmosphere. The, word, the work is self-contained and tough. Its ingredients remain raw. They are given to us without anything to prepare our digestion of them. Everything here is blunt intact, clear, and rough, and a throat. However, what does the source, which Nijinsky so strongly rejects, consists of exactly? Can that renunciation be compared to the removal of traditional ornament in modernist art and architecture? In dance, according to Riviere, quote, there are generally two degrees of source. First, the source of Louis Fuller, a play of light, a floating of fabrics, an enveloping of the body in veils, which mask its limits, and an effacing of all contours. The Russians have from the beginning openly declared themselves against the first kind of source. They have made the body reappear from beneath the veils. They have brought clarity back to dance. End of quote. The second source is the source of dynamism, where movements control the body. They, quote, correct it, improve it, they, conduct, they coordinate its members with a swelled and flowing grace. They efface all, all angularity. They fill holes, throw up new bridges, 
from head to foot the body takes on an indescribable sense of fluidity and roundedness. The novelty of Le Sacré Printemps is the renunciation of this dynamic source, the return to the body. End of quote. It is more than a peculiar coincidence that this manifesto of modernism and dance, with all its emphasis on unveiled clarity and unornamented purity, was published in the same year as the tr French translation of the ominous yet influential text of the modernist architect Adolf Loos, Ornament and Crime. Originally published in Vienna in 1908, this text expresses Loos' contempt for the excessive use of ornament in European Art Nouveau and American neoclassicist architecture, which, according to Loos, not only betrays a regressive nostalgia sublimated in the desire to mask, but it's also a form of crime, since, quote, ornamentation is wasted effort and hence wasted health. That's how it has always been. Today, however, it's also wasted material and both together add up to wasted capital. As ornament is no longer organically linked with our culture, it is also no longer an expression of our culture. Ornament is created today has no connection with us, has no human connection at all, no connection with the world that it is, as it is constituted, it cannot be developed. End of quote. However, the connection between ornament and modernism in the particular case of the Rite of Spring is more complicated than a mere analogy between the renunciation of choreographic source and the removal of ornament in modernist architecture. For Wojnarz-Nijinsky's choreography, is ornamental in itself. In turning away from wheeling the body in floating costumes and hiding it under unnecessarily dynamic movements, he allows his choreography to be perceived as a primarily geometric ornament due to his cooperation with Marie Rombert and his influence on um, and the influence of Emile Jacques Dacro's Eurythmics, his choreography was structured by movement patterns based on simple geometrical forms, such as circles, triangles, lines and angles, which his dancers incorporate with their bodies and lumps. Repeated over and over again, these patterns were gradually transformed or harshly interrupted by other choreographic figures, reflecting the repetitive character of Igor Stravinsky's music, as well as the use of forms and color in Nicholas Rurik's costume design. And the slide that you're going to see now for a couple of minutes is um, an extract from um, one of the original costumes of the Rite of Spring. Although in the lace, uh, latter case of Rurik's costume design, the forms and colors were obviously motivated by a primitivistic attitude, constructing an archaic parse and seeking inspiration in tribal art, the ornamental structure of both costume and choreography is strongly related to the rise of abstract art in Paris in 1913. I'm not going to... Um, elaborate on the <coughs> primitivistic um, attitudes of Rurik and the origin and the influence uh, of, the, of, these, um, of this construct of primitivistic, primitivist art that he um, tries to um, or did um, use for, for, the, uh, for the design of uh, the Rite of Spring. But I'm going to compare, um, this is new then, uh, the design of the costume with really the abstract art in 1913 in Paris, not the cubist, um, not cubist art, this is really the, after the, um, the climax of, of cubist art. Um, so it's, um, you wish to see it now, this is the, um, the design. This is um, an original shoe from the dancers for the Rite of Spring. 
uh, you see that also the ribbons were um, ornamented and um, also the shoes themselves, you can see very slightly, um, had um, ornamentation on them. And this is a, a painting or a, um, um, a drawing by Nijinsky done a few years after the Rite of Spring in 1918, 1919, and around about that. And um, it shows a very strong, to my mind, relationship to um, abstract art um, of in Paris in 1913. Um, the primitivistic influence of Wurich have been analyzed extensively, but if I may add this, they are still worth reviewing in a more critical way, but that emphasizes their hybrid character and problematizes their orientalistic presuppositions. However, considering the connections to abstract art around 1913, promises to reveal new insight into the use of ornament in the Rite of Spring, and in particular, the work of Sonia Delaunay-Terk and Fanichet Kupka at that time shows visual similarities to the abstract drawings which Nijinsky himself produced shortly after the Rite of Spring. So this is Nijinsky, and this is Nijinsky as well, about um, 1918, 1919. This is Kupka, uh, Kupka, two years before the Rite of Spring, uh, also Kupka, um, 1912, and this is Sonia Delonit, uh, the very famous painting um, Le Balbulier from exactly the year 1913. And this is um, the Robe Simultané, also designed by um, um, Sonia Delonit-Terk in 1913. Um, <clears throat> as in the choreography, all the three make intensive uh, use of circular forms and spiral figuration, and in the particular case of Sonia Delaunay-Terk, one may draw parallels between the use of ornamental structures in her costume and fashion design and Rurik's work. Besides these visual parallels between abstract art and the choreography and the costume design of the Rite of Spring, the contemporaries of 1913 also approached the irritating event of the premiere through a process of extra ornamentation. This can clearly be seen in the case of the pictures taken by Charles Gershel, showing the dancers and typical poses in front of a richly ornamented wall. In a second step, the figures of the dancers were cut out and pasted onto a new and monotonous background by adding artificial shadows and re-emphasizing the ornamental structures of the costumes, especially the lacing of the ribbons around the legs and the bordures of the, tunic, of the tunics. In a third and even more astonishing step, these cut-out and re-ornamented figures could be used as composi compositional elements in the magazines to accompany the reprinting of the original pictures in a symmetrical, more neoclassicist way that lacked the novelty and rigor the use of ornament had in the costumes and in the poses themselves. This is uh, from the very famous... Um, Comedy uh, um, Illustré from 1913, where you can see the, the poses, the cut of uh, um, pictures, and um, it's. Um, I use the pointer, probably will work. Um, the ornament here, it's, it's little hearts. It's unbelievable, but it's really um, a mixture of um, hearts. It's even, you can see it here better, these <laughs> tiny little two hearts. <laughs> Um, before analyzing some of these um, ornamental elements from the Rite of Spring and the principles structuring them, more closely I would like to sketch out the background of ornament theory in general and then to, and then to position the Rite of Spring in front of this background. 
The disregarding of ornament culminating in Adolf Loh's writing, but also noticeable, noticeable in Rivière's elaboration of the removal of choreographic source, dates back to the very beginning of theoretical reflection on ornament. For Aristotle, hokosmos, the Greek word for ornament or decoration, but also for makeup and any kind of cosmetic paste, primarily had a rhetorical function as an additional epitheton or apposition. It lacked any substance. It was contrary to figuration and bound to inauthenticity. Ornamentation was a process of covering and masking nothing more than mere cosmetics. The disapproval of ornament and rhetoric common in Western philosophy since Aristotle finds its parallel in the realm of the aesthetic where it bears a yet more ambiguous character. In Immanuel Kant's, Immanuel Kant's critique of the power of judgment, ornamental figurations of flowers and leaves in framework and wallpaper are described as prominent examples of free beauties, since they do not represent any specific object, thus allowing for the reception of uh, disinterested benevolence and conveying aesthetic theorization in general, ornamentation becomes highly estimated. Yet this estimation is linked to the lack of representation and function attributed to ornament, a lack which clearly reflects the absence of substance and authenticity that ornament had already been accused of in the realm of rhetoric. Reaching further than the reevaluation of the paragon in the ornamental framing of picture, which Jacques Derrida conceptualizes as a model of um, inevitable, inevitable and always already superfluous addition, newer theories of ornament no longer concentrate on particular ornamental forms, but attempt to look at the principle of ornamentation itself. For example, Jean-Claude Bonn theorizes the ornamental as a modus operandi which can manifest itself in different forms, even in figural and narrative structure. This avoids the traditional disregarding of ornament as well as the separation between figuration and narration on one side and ornamentation on the other, since the ornamental can reveal itself on both sides and does not necessarily appear in particular decorative motives. Applying this, applying this new approach to ornament uh, to the right of spring, while focusing more on generative and perceptive aspects than on the decorative function of ornament, I will ask, what is the relationship between the narrative, the sacrifice of an individual person for the sake of the community, and the use of ornamental patterns in Ijinsky's choreography? Looking back on the right of spring and the knowledge that it premiered only one year before the outbreak of World War I, does its, does its aesthetic relationship between disruption and continuity ultimately mirror a political impact? Is it use of ornament only connected to a potential continuation of decorative transformation and a lack of representation? Or does the modus of ornament generate narrative, emotional and even political references? I will focus on two different manifestations of the ornament in the, the angle and the circle. In Ijinsky's choreography, lines are incorporated by the particular limbs or entire bodies of the dancers, um, right, of the dancers, as well as being written in space by their harsh, almost cutting and scratching repetitive movements. They reflect the angularity in the use of the use of in the use of lines in Rurik's costumes design, of which the peculiar lacing of ribbons around the dancers' legs legs and the square pieces of red cloth under the armpits. You can see them um, over there. These are red um, 
red triangles and red squares, and you can see only when the dancers lift their arms. And it's very—it's kind of shocking effect um, visible in the in, when you look at the reconstruction that the, they, they move and suddenly they lift up their arms, and then you see as if they—I mean, it's quite quite rude uh, to see these, these uh, <laughs> red squares if they, they are sweating um, so much. Um, these are the most. Um, probably the most prominent um, examples of the use of, of lines and squares. Uh, with regard to dance history, the angularity in the Rite of Spring seems to be a completely novelty, only vaguely comparable to the movement style of Valeska Gerd, yet according to Jacques Rivier, it has already appeared in the Ballet Russe productions of Petrushka and may also be seen in the movement style of La Primidie d'Enfant. Thus anticipated in completely different pieces, the angularity in the Rite of Spring was not only motivated by the primitivistic ideology of the narration, its angles harshly established by the turned and feet and outstretched arms and the nearly militant phalanx-like blocks in which the dancers moved could rather be understood as a way to represent social violence in general. The angularity seems to reflect on tendencies towards exclusion and victimization and literally on killing. Secondly, the ornamental use of circles, which can hardly be ignored in Nijinsky's choreography, converges with the ritual aspects in the narration of the ballet. These are also shoes uh, from the um, original costumes. Uh, the other shoes uh, made use of uh, lines, and these shoes, you can see, you can see uh, made, use, um, made use of the, um, of the, of the circles. In contrast to the Judeo-Christian um, linear concept of time, the circular structure of the hybrid religion represented in the Rite of Spring found its visual representation in the circles in which the dancers moved in both parts of the choreography. These were circular, rotating, and multi-centered figurations which, as far as we know, were always in danger of partly dissolving themselves into more chaotic structures. In contrast to the circular figuration and defiguration on the stage, the audience was excluded. They did not take part in the ritual represented in front of them. Yet the audience of the premiere in 1913 not only witnessed a choreographic performance, but also took part in a ritual process involving the dancing on the stage and its writer's reception in the auditorium. The only represented rituality on the stage found a counterpart in an actual ritual in the auditorium that added voyeurism and complicity to the mere spectatorship of the audience. This may again be discussed in the political and social context of 1913 in anticipation of experiences of death and guilt in the following years of war. I would like to widen the perspective on the use of ornament in the Rite of Spring even further by turning to the process of ornamentation itself, the formation of forms, the intertwining of figuration and defiguration. The basic principles of any ornamentation, repetition and difference, repeating and transforming, structure the choreography in a particular way. Not only did the repetitive stamping and trembling of the dancers completely new to the history of dance on stage, probably provoke the righteous reception of the rite, but the death of the chosen maiden at the end was represented as if it was caused by the repetition of the dance movements. Intertwining ornament and crime, not in accordance with the modernist argument of laws, but in a much more anarchic and irritating way with exposed artistic stupidity, 
Nijinsky's choreography shows ornament as having a killing function. A crime is committed by repetition and interrupts the potential endlessness which accompanies any ornamentation, but without marking an, a uto an utopian or messianic break in continuity. With regard to the crossing of potentially endless repetition with difference, break and transformation, and the intertwining between figuration and defiguration, I will end up I will end by quoting Jacques Louvier once again, Fabian, the obvious narrative level of the Rite of Spring, he reveals its ornamental structure. Quote, this ballet is a biological ballet. It is not only the dance of the most primitive man, it is also the dance before man. It is spring seen from the interior, spring in its straining, its spasms, its dividing. One would think he is witnessing a drama beneath a microscope. It is the story of karyokinesis, the profound labor of the seed, of which it separates and reproduces itself, the division of birth, scission and reunions of turbulent matter in its very substance, large turning masses of protoplasms, germinative slabs, zones, circles. We are plunged into microscopic regions. We witness obtuse movement, the mindless coming and going, or the fortuitous vortices through which matter slowly lifts itself into life, and little by little, through patience and their brute obstinacy in demanding, a sort of solution comes to pass, which again is no different, no different from themselves, and again is mixed with the mass of their bodies, and this is life. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.